I, I wonder, have I ever told you guys about the time I almost got into a fight at Bible college? Have I told you guys that? Uh, this is not the story from when I was a freshman. Uh, this is another story. Uh, so I haven't told you guys that. All right, well, I'll tell you that about that in just a second. Uh, first, want to um, just uh, want to celebrate together for a moment. So everybody's gonna everybody's gonna cheer and be excited about this because this is amazing. You know, um, uh, we just talked about Kingdom Builders, and um, uh, it's a new year. So in a couple of weeks, we're gonna show you our our projects for 2020. We're gonna show you our goal for 2020. 2019, our goal was fifty thousand dollars that we'd be able to give. We'd be able to start things like Church Online, which started this morning, which is pretty exciting. And um, just a quick thing on Church Online, how do we use that as a restoration church? We use this to invite people to our church. You invite them to come, they're like, I don't know, I, you know, I've never been to church before. Then you're able to say, well, hey, check it out online. And they're able to participate that way, and, um, and that will make it easier for them to come for the first time, because they'll have already seen us and experienced worship and, and heard my stories and, uh, and heard how we, how we talk about God's word. So that's going to be the big win, using that as another tool to invite people to hear about Jesus. So we set a goal of $50,000. Um, we, we just obviously finished out the year, so we've got our totals in for the year. I remember, our goal was $50,000, and we gave $119,532.78. I just can't even believe that. Can't even believe that. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Um, at one point this fall, our goal for 2020 was going to be $100,000. Like we were making preparations and, and figuring out our projects for next year based on that number. And then we went past it. So we've changed our goal, I think, three different times for 2020 as our, as our giving continued to um, just continue to surpass all of our expectations. So anyway, amazing. Wanted to take a moment to celebrate that with you. And uh, let me get back to the, my story at the time I almost got in a fight. So Bible college, for those of you who don't know, I don't know why we call it Bible college, but it's where you go, you learn, you study theology, you study the Bible, and you're training to be a minister, to be a pastor, to be a reverend, like, like I am now. And so you would think that um, just everybody there is kind, humble, um, gracious, and no, that's where we're learning to be those things. So this is part of my story. And uh, uh, so it's just three days before I'm supposed to graduate. Um, and so classes are, classes are pretty much done, uh, but I had one more final left that I needed to pass, or it was going to be an awkward bunch of phone calls and say, hey, I meant next May. And uh, so I was, I was just studying around the clock, just trying to make sure, I wanted to make sure that this final, um, it was no question. Like, I was going to ace it, which I did, I got a 90. And uh, the teacher questioned me about it, but no, it was legitimate. So anyway, it's the last few days of school, it's just party atmosphere, um, it's just exciting, we just know, like, when we're done. And uh, I was 
um, there was a bunch of people from school. They were playing a pickup game of softball. And so I was out there. I wasn't playing. Again, I was, I was studying. But um, at some point in the game, there was a guy who was five or six years older than me. So he was in his mid-20s, but he was either a freshman or a sophomore at the school. I don't, I don't remember. And um, there was this play where um, he, he was... Uh, he was in the outfield, and uh, someone hit the ball, and it went over this girl's head. Like, she just absolutely, um, she should have caught the ball. She didn't. And that girl was, I had gone to youth group with her. She was from our church. And, um, and the, this guy, who was a few years older than me, just started screaming at this girl in the, out in the softball field on the campus of this Bible college where we're all trained to be ministers. Just screaming at her. He just lost his mind. And so I, I look up from my, from my study guide, and I'm, and I'm just watching. And so I, I, I got mad, and so I started yelling at him from, you know, from 200 feet away. Like, um, you know, stop yelling at her. Like, are you kidding me right now? And, uh, and so um, she, she left the game, and uh, I, I went back to my dorm room like, whatever with this guy. It was unbelievable. Well, I was shocked when an hour later, he came to my dorm room. I was knocking on the door, and I opened the door. And so he, he's right here. I'm right here. We just, I've got the door partially open, and we're, we're talking really close. And I was shocked. I was shocked. I wasn't prepared for what happened next, all right? So I thought maybe he's going to apologize, maybe whatever. Well, he started to tell me how wrong it was for me to yell at him. And he's like, yeah, don't you, you know, don't you yell at me, whatever, whatever. So listen, I was triggered. I, I lost it. I lost it. Probably, uh, probably one of the maddest moments I had ever been in my whole life. So I start going back and forth with the guy. And I'm like, and so I, I, I you know, this is a pick a game of softball. It's not like we're winning a championship here where someone goes home with a plastic trophy. This is a pickup game of softball. And, um, and so we're going back and forth, and he's like, you shouldn't yell at me, whatever, whatever. And I said, you shouldn't yell at a girl. Like, you should be yelling at this girl over the softball game, and he won't, he won't even acknowledge that I'm talking about this girl. He, and so he's just talking about me disrespecting him. And so uh, finally I start getting elevated. I'm going to take off my mic here for a second to make my story uh, a little bit more realistic. And so, again, we're face-to-face. And uh, so finally, finally, I'm not, I'm just going to talk and he's going to listen and uh, I'm not going to listen to anything he's saying. So I'm like, uh, I said, uh, he's like, you, you should never have yelled at me. And I said, you tell me when it's okay to yell at a girl. And he goes on, he doesn't he ignore my question. I said, tell me when it's okay to yell at a girl. And he goes on, I said, tell me when it's okay to yell at a girl. <laughs> and, and he's silent. And I go, that's right, never! And I shut the door and locked it and went back to studying and, uh, and graduated and became the pastor of Restoration Church. Actually, to tell you the truth, I was currently a pastor at Restoration Church as pastor of U-Turn. When it happened, it just, I don't know what would have happened. But anyway, um, 
That's a true story. That's the exact, I mean, I was red, shit, my whole body was shaking as I screamed that and uh, left them speechless. It was good. Um, triggered. <laughs> uh, we are starting a series today called Triggered, and there, um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a, um, a clinical definition of trigger, and I'll share that with you. These are external events or circumstances that may produce uncomfortable emotional or psychiatric symptoms, such as, I lost my breath, anxiety, panic, discouragement, despair, or negative self-talk. Those aren't the things we're talking about in this. We're talking about this word that has kind of developed within society that is called triggered. You see memes about it, you'll make jokes about it, people make jokes about it, but this is the definition of being triggered. Getting filled with hate after seeing, hearing, or experiencing something you can't stand. So this is not being mad, this is not being upset, this is not having a difficult emotional moment, um, this isn't... Um, uh, you know, being out, even necessarily being outraged by something, this is being filled with hate over something. And people, what's happening, it feels like in our culture more and more, is we are cultivating that. It's an age of outrage. It's encouraged to be outraged. Find someone to hate and then blast them. Find someone to hate. Find a group to hate. Find a philosophy to hate. Find a religion to hate. Find, um, find uh, 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 some bit of, of economy to hate. Find something to hate and then hate it with everything you've got. Scream, spit, shout, say mean words, do anything you can to, and use that hate. And really, the, the, for some people, their thought is that it would bring change. But even if it's not something that would bring any change, it's like, let's find that. And then people rally around that. If I were to, um, well, I won't, uh, there, and this is the trigger that we're talking about. And people, what it feels like is people are searching and trying to discover a tr something to be triggered about. People, you know, it's like people sitting behind their keyboards and just, what am I going to be mad about today? Who can I be angry at? Who can we call to lose their job and, um, and this is what's developing more and more and more. Getting mad, getting filled with hate at anything and everything. Now, think about this. What's the pettiest thing you've ever lost your mind about? Uh, I've been on the opposite side of some yellings that were surprising to me. And one that stands out to me because I didn't, I, I still don't fully understand what happened, but I was at a family gathering, and someone asked, I don't know if it was my son when he was three years old, I don't know if it was one of my nieces or nephews who were a little bit older, but they asked something about my grandfather and what he did for work. And so I answered, and I said, oh, he used to be a farmer. My grandfather was in the room, and I kind of answered for him. He lost his mind. He started yelling at me like I was yelling at that guy at Bible college. I was not a farmer. A farmer, blah, blah, blah. And I was like shocked. And I looked at my mom and my grandfather's going on and on. And, I, and then he finally he stopped. He settled down. I said, didn't you live and work on a chicken farm? Yeah. 
Doesn't that make you a farmer? Well, I was not a farmer. And I still don't know. I tried to understand. But to him, a farmer was a derogatory um, statement. All right? It was, it was reducing him um, to something low. So if you ever think about occupation that you try to make fun of someone for being, he just has, has thought I was demeaning him. And for probably much of his life, people looked down at him for doing that work. Now, culture's luring us in. Get angry, get outraged, make a scene, post a video. People are going to give you thumbs up. People are going to like it. All the people on your side can say, yeah, go you. But is that really the way we should be living? Is that really a way that's going to bring the things out of us and the things out of our life that we want? And I don't think it is. I don't think it's the way we want to live this year. Maybe that's the way you've lived before, but I think God's calling us to something better. Even culture, as people are studying outrage and, and anger, they're even calling us to, to live differently. So we want to look at those things. If you've got your Bible, I want, to, I want you to open up to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in this book. It was written by Paul for this entire series. And uh, there's a, we, could, we could be in, this, uh, in the book of Colossians for, for probably a couple of months, but we're just going um, to kind of move quickly through it, a chapter a week. Uh, excuse me, yeah, chapter a week. So this week is all of chapter one, which again, we could do um, six or eight weeks on, but we're going to just hit really kind of a couple verses in that um, on this that kind of relate to this topic, and then next week we'll jump into chapter two. So what's going on here is this letter was written to, Paul wrote this letter to a church that he had never been to. He probably knew some of the leaders of the church, but he did not know the church personally. He had never been there personally. When he wrote this, it was about 60 to 61 AD, and he was writing from prison. He'd been in prison for preaching like I'm doing now, um, for telling and sharing the, the message of Jesus with people. So he was in jail, arrested, and he's continuing his ministry. They didn't let this bad circumstance keep him from, um, from following God, from blaming God, from being mad at God. He just he knew his mission. He continued to, no matter what, serving God. Now, also, as you read this letter, he didn't use this to attack the, the, the Jewish people. He didn't use this to attack the Roman government. Um, he continued still trying to help people to live the Christian life, to live in a way that honoring and pleasing to Jesus. So he's writing this to the Colossian church, and the Colossian church is being faced with, uh, with something very dangerous, and so Paul's writing to try to help them. The, there was a group of false teacher, teachers who had infiltrated the church and were trying to lead people ultimately away from Jesus. It's a false doctrine, a false belief. One kind of a small, tiny false belief can lead a church absolutely away from Jesus. Does not take very much. So doctrine and theology and understanding of scripture is very, very important. We don't ever want to be in a place where we just say, well, that's what I believe. We always want to search scripture and try to find out what, what really is the Bible saying. 
And we don't ever want to take someone else's interpretation and say, oh, that's not a sin, that is a sin, that's okay, that's not okay, you need to do this, you can't do that. We always, again, must personally jump back into Scripture and try to discover that and make sure we're not being led the wrong way. These false teachers, the big thing that they were teaching to the Colossian church was that Jesus wasn't really God. And this is a big deal because if Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, if Jesus isn't really God, if he's not really God, that changes everything for us. It changes absolutely everything. Uh, our fundamental beliefs about forgiveness of sins and eternal life, those are not true anymore if Jesus wasn't really God. So our entire hope, our entire belief of, of forgiveness and salvation through faith through grace, none of that's true if Jesus was just someone like you and me. None of that. So this was coming in. This was, this was being taught. People were believing this. People were beginning to, um, to teach, to reteach this, and Paul's coming to address this. Now, this is something that certainly should have triggered him, and this is, if you're going to get mad about something, people lying about Jesus, people diminishing Jesus, that's a big thing. That's something that you need to stand up about and defend, not lose your mind over, not hate over, but to defend. These are big, eternal problems. So Paul is addressing this. Now, I want to read in, uh, we're going to be reading in Colossians chapter 1, what he's doing in chapter 1. There's a big part of it, if you open chapter 1, where he's talking about Jesus. And uh, he's talking about Christ being supreme. He is, he is number one over everything. He is number one over, uh, over everyone. And trying to help us to understand, he's not just some guy who came. He's not just some angel who left heaven and did some cool stuff. No, he was fully gone. He became fully man. And he's trying to help us to see his his how he rules and reigns over everything seen and unseen. This amazing part of scripture for you to read. He then, he, he, within this chapter too, kind of interspersed with it and all of that, he's calling the people in the church in Colossians to just live above what's comfortable, live above what's normal, and to live for Jesus. And this is the same call that I'm making to you this morning, to live above culture, to live above the way people talk on Facebook and Instagram, to live above the way people act at Bible college, to live above the way that, um, that your neighbors act, to live in a way that Jesus has called us to live. This is what he's doing. And the words that he's spoken to the Colossian church are true for the New Hampshire church. The words that he spoke to those people from his jail cell are just as true for us. They're written from his jail cell to us as well. So first, uh, excuse me, Colossians chapter 1. I want to read verses 9 and 10, and then 10 is where we're really going to be looking at um, today. Verse number 9. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. This is verses 9 and 10. I want to show you the beginning of verse number 10. It's from a different translation. So at, at Restoration Church, we, um, we use the New Living Translation every week, and there's not a right or wrong translation to use. The original scriptures were written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and so translating those into English is not an easy task because one word can have 15 different meanings. Um, Hebrew didn't have any vowels, and so it's a difficult task. So we use New Living Translation because it's very readable, very understandable. But I want to show you this line in the English Standard Version, and because um, there some some uh, symbolism here in the scripture that will help us. So it says, so walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Think about how do you live in an age of outrage? This is a defining principle. This is a defining verse for us. Live, so walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. The word walk, let's talk about that for a second. The word walk um, is used a lot in scripture. It helps us to understand our spiritual journey. It helps us to understand what it is to, to have faith in Jesus. It's not just a singular event where we, um, you know, where we pray a prayer or come to an understanding, but it's a journey. There's, a, there's a, a, a path that you're going on. It's so a walking is symbolizing that. It's not stagnant. It's not complacent. Um, but it's something, it's something that you continue on and getting closer and closer to the destination. And that destination for us is to become fully like Jesus and to come face to face with Jesus. That's the destination for us. Every day we become more and more like him. And every day we get minute by minute closer to meeting him face to face. So this word walk, it is uniting and bringing together two things, the way we believe with the way we live, the way we act. How we walk is a combination of those two things. So he's saying now walk in a manner, walk in a way that your belief system and your lifestyle are, are together. They're, they're not in competition with each other. They're not in disagreement with each other. Walk in a way that what you believe determines how you live. Just a couple ideas of that. So our faith in Jesus for eternal life, we believe there's a life after this one, our belief, our faith in Jesus for eternal life should not be separate from our daily life. How, you know, we have faith. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I've, I, you know, I've asked him for forgiveness of my sins. That should not be separate from our daily life. How we work tomorrow at our job. How we mourn the loss of the Patriots game last night. All these things are, should, be, uh, should, be, should not be separate 
from our faith in Jesus. Another way to think of it is our theology should determine our methodology. So theology is our understanding and study of God. So the more we know and understand God, which is what the scripture is calling us to do, that you'll know him better and better, and that you'll live better and better. Not, not, not really necessarily to a moral standard, but that you'll live closer and closer to Jesus. And every day, minute by minute, moment by moment, you're more closely reflecting Jesus in his life. Walk. Walk. Your belief in eternal life and your daily life, they should be combined. One should affect the other. The other should affect the other. Now, the second part of this was walk. Uh, it says worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means to walk in a way that is fitting and consistent with who Jesus is to us. Who is he to you? Do you treat him like some guy who's not God? Is that your belief? Then he's easy to be ignored. It's easy to take his opinion and do what you want anyway. It's no different than, you know, than... Um, uh, you know, then the guy sitting in the waiting room at the, at the garage shop, the guy, he's there getting his car fixed. I'm there getting my car fixed, and he's trying to tell me what I need to do to get my car fixed. Oh, thank you for your opinion. I'd like to go back to reading my magazine. I'll let the mechanic tell me how to do it. It's just an opinion of some guy who's no better off than I am. And if Jesus is some guy, well, big deal. Okay, cool. He was famous in history. But that was it. Your belief now, your understanding and the position you put him in, you're now walking in a manner worthy of who you think he is. Who do I think Jesus is? Well, I believe he changed my life when I was 14 years old. Changed it. I was angry. I was depressed. Um, uh, I was... um, you know, I was really, really struggling. One moment in the church service changed it. Changed me. And I had always believed in God, but I had no idea God knew who I was. It changed my life that he would, that he would take time to heal me and to, and, and to help me. Changed everything for me. What, I, what do I believe? I believe he's the son of God, fully God, fully man. And I want to live in a way that's worthy of that. So I, I lead a church. I preach scripture um, because I want everybody to experience what I did when I was 14 years old. I, I tithe. I give to kingdom builders because I want everybody around the world, around the globe, to be able to experience them the way I did when I was 14 years old. There's been no day in my life where I followed Jesus that it was a waste or that I regret. I've placed him. I believe he's fully God, fully man, God's son sent to die on a cross for me. I try to live now in a manner worthy of that. That means sometimes I go and apologize to people when I don't want to because I did something wrong. That means I give. That means I... That means, yeah, I repent. That means I forgive others. 
And I try to live in a way that's reflecting Jesus to other people. That means when I'm tempted to engage in arguments on the internet, I don't. Even if they're lies about me, I believe in God's my defender, the defender of my family, the defender of my reputation, the defender of his church. I'll let him sort those things out. Live in, a word, live in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. When you're, when, you're, when you're triggered, when something's caused you to snap, or even when you're beginning trying to cultivate in you, you know, you're wronged by customer service, and you're like hyping yourself up, like, that's it. I'm going to call them. I'm going give to give them a piece of my mind. And you're like trying to psych yourself up into it. Talk, stop in those moments. Consider what Jesus has done. Consider what he is doing and consider what he will do for us as we, as we follow him, as we trust him. The idea behind verse number 10 is something like this. Let your walk be the kind of walk and the kind of life that brings credit, that brings recognition to the grace of God in Christ. Let the way you live let your daily life draw people toward questions about eternal life. Let your daily life show people how much you value Jesus. Let your daily life show people the goodness and the grace of God in your life. So if we think and we understand the scripture, now what do we do? Paul wrote to the Colossian church, they had decisions to make. You know what? They had people they had to throw out of their church. Hey, you don't, you don't, you're teaching things that are demeaning and diminishing Jesus. You cannot do that here, which is a tough thing that they had to do. But for us, what is it for us today? What do we do? How do we walk in a way that's worthy to the Lord? Now, when you, when you get angry, because we all will, God created us with these emotions, so we, have, um, we don't want to just suppress those, which is a tactic many people take, and it's a tactic that, uh, that, that I definitely used much in my life. Just I'm just not going to feel this. I'm going to ignore that I'm upset about this, that I'm hurt about this. I'm going to bottle it up. Well, bottling doesn't, does not do anything. It's like trying to contain uh, 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 Coke and Mentos, all right? You're just like, I'm just going to hold this tight right here. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry about me. Suppressing that, it is go there's going to be an explosion one day, and it'll be a catastrophe. It'll cause, more, it'll cause a lot of damage for you. If you're suppressing uh, anger in your marriage, anger in your workplace, anger with your parents or your kids, you've got to do something about that. Now, what people believe and what's being taught is that what you need to do is vent. That is what's going to make you feel better. Give them a piece of your mind. That's what's going to make you feel better. But secular psychologists all agree, venting does not make us feel better. We usually feel far worse after we've done that, even if there's an immediate feeling of feeling better. It leads us to a darker place. We begin to mistreat people, and this is not how 
how you and I, people who follow Jesus, this is not the option we have. What psychologists are teaching people who don't believe in Jesus is this term called reappraisal. And, uh, and, it's, a, and it's great advice, and we're going to take that and include scripture in it. But reappraisal, the definition is to, uh, it involves cognitively reframing an event to reduce its negative impact. My wife does this, does this really well. She gets cut off, even if it's just an absolute absurd driver, cuts her off in the middle of the road. Um, people will be freaking out in the car. She's like, you know, uh, there was an instance where someone she was riding with rolled down the window and was screaming at the other car. My wife was driving. She's like, you don't yell at people like that. You have no idea what the person's story is in that other car. Well, they were driving like an idiot. Maybe they just found out their wife is in the emergency room and their kid's in the emergency room. And so they're rushing to get to the hospital. Maybe, maybe they just had a terrible day. Maybe, they're, maybe their mom died or, or their kid died, and they're just, they're just in a fog, and they can't even think straight. And now you're screaming at them. This is what reappraisal is. When you experience someone angry against you, you don't suppress it. You don't vent back. You begin to think, what's going on in their life? And when you, when you talk through that, what happens is, um, uh, your, your entire brain shifts. It shifts from red to greens or, you know, whatever colors they're using on their, on their brain scans. Um, but it, it, as soon as you think, oh, maybe they had a bad day, everything shifts Psych it, it, uh, psychologically and chemically within your body when you think that. So how do we engage in an age of outrage? For us as Christians, it's reappraisal, but not, not just you know, it's necessarily making up stories about other people, but it's what I just talked about. You bring, you're bringing Jesus into this equation. I know how I want to act, but I begin to think how and why I should act. So I know when someone's coming at my dorm room how I want to act, but how should I act as someone who follows and trusts Jesus? And why should I act that way? Asking yourself that question will shift, your, shift the chemicals in your body. And it's not suppression and it's not venting. But now, all right, how am I going to handle now this situation in a way that's worthy of, of Jesus? I've been wronged at the customer service counter. How am I going to act in this store right now in a way that's worthy of Jesus? This is my last two thoughts, and then I want to pray for you. We put ourselves and we say, God's will before my own. This is how we reappraise. God's will before my own. I may have been right in the way I talked with that guy at Bible college, but you know what? I was wrong. It, 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 was, it was right. Um, he, he, he misspoke to, um, to my friend. He does not have a right to talk to her that way. But the way I acted was wrong. God's will before my own. And then, this is the other part, his name before my own. We're so worried about how, what people will think about us, people taking advantage of us, 
um, and we act in a way that, break, that, that uh, hurts and harms the name of Jesus. And if you're someone that swore a long time ago you'd never come back to, to church, a lot of times it's because it was the way that someone who said they followed Jesus, it was the way that they treated you. You said, well, they're, I don't have anything to do, do with Jesus because that, because that person was such a jerk and so harmful and so toxic. I close with this story. I remember um, we used to have a church van. We don't, we don't anymore because of stories like this. Um, but uh, uh, when I was youth pastor, my boss, people used to always tell him, like, hey, we need to get our church, our church name on the sign. And, you know, we can make it look really Christian. We'll put doves on it and, and Noah's Ark. And uh, it's going to be amazing. We've got to do this. We've got to do this. And he used to always say, I'll never put the church name on the sign because I don't want people to know it was us that drove by them. And, and I, he's like, if someone's cut someone off or someone acts like an idiot, I don't want them to call the church later and say, your man cut me off. And, uh, and so I always thought that was kind of funny. Um, except one time I was uh, in Gonic, New Hampshire. I was waiting to pull on Route 125. And I went to, I looked left, I looked right, and I went to pull out and then realized, Oh, there's a car coming. I hit my brakes real fast. And the van, and it was the church van who started shaking their fist at me and screaming at me. And I'm like, yep, we'll never put our church name on the side of the van. Live, it's his name before my own. So because people don't know how to drive, we don't want people to give to blame Jesus for that. So we're not gonna put. <laughs> You got a Jesus bumper sticker or eventually a Restoration Church bumper sticker or your license plate says, I love God, love others. You know, I'm the greatest Christian in the whole world. Well, you better act in a way that's not going to hurt the name of Jesus. You should do like me. Don't have anything like that on your vehicle. But for the most, I, I mean, I'm not an aggressive driver. The problem is I'm a daydreaming driver. So it's not good to be like sightseeing while you're driving. So that's not... Anyway, God's will, not your own. His name, not your own. How do you live? How do you engage in an age of outrage? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Close your eyes and let me pray for you. Jesus, who are you to us as Restoration Church? We believe you're God's only son, sent to die on a cross for us. We believe that you're the risen Savior. You changed everything for eternity, forever. Jesus, I know what you've done in my life, how you changed my life. And you know, for many of us, we share that same testimony. But though we've believed you for our, our eternal life, we've lived our daily life without you. We don't think about how we represent you. We don't think about how you, call, how you call us to walk. We don't think about how you've called us to impact the world. We're just living our life and showing up at church on Sunday. And when something goes bad, we're hoping you're going to be there to take care of it. Well, that's not, that's, that's not believing that you're on the throne of heaven and earth. It is our pleasure and our desire to live in the life 
worthy of you. We just pray you help us. Change our hearts, change our mindsets, change our attitudes. And God, when we're tempted, when we're, when we're triggered and we're tempted to be filled with hate, we're going to reappraise the situation. We're going to remember what you did, how people came at you full of hate, how people have, have misspoken, lied about you for generations, yet you still respond with grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love. And Lord, we may not be able to do that 100% of the time, but God, it's our will to live in a way that makes your name lifted high and makes other people respond and question and decide to follow you because we didn't allow ourselves to be triggered, but we allowed you to have that place in our life. For anybody in here who's never made a decision to follow you, pray today they do that. It's a simple thing. We ask you to forgive us. We believe that we need a, a Savior, and we give our life to you. Just simple couple of sentences. Our eternity's changed, our past has changed, and our life has changed. We're forgiven, we're made free, we become a child of God. And I just pray for anybody who hasn't made that decision, they'd make that decision now. They'd ask you to be their Savior and their God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.